You've had parents and grandparents who have taught you the Bible from childhood. You just take it for granted. You say, well, what else is new? And it's become so familiar that you have a cavalier attitude towards the Bible you hold in your hands. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and today we move into chapter 3, which contains one of the 100 or so Bible verses every Christian should have memorized, and that is verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But before we arrive there, the Apostle Paul in the first part of the chapter contrasts the righteousness of man with the righteousness of God in a message entitled, The Depravity of Man. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. You know, when the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write the book of Romans, he inspired him to give us first the bad news before he gave us the good news. And God knows that the good news about Jesus Christ is not good unless you first understand the bad news. In fact, unless you understand the bad news first, the only way you will be able to understand the death of Christ is as a tragic act of brutality on the kindest person who ever lived. And so point by point, line upon line, precept upon precept, quotation upon quotation, illustration upon illustration, the Apostle Paul is driving home the fact that man is sinful, guilty, and lost, and by nature, children of wrath, under the condemnation of God. And he paints for us a philosophy, a biblical theology, that in many ways has become antithetical to the modern evangelical church. Today, more and more, we are told that if we are to be seeker-sensitive, we can't speak about sin. We can't be too heavy with biblical truth because this will drive away the lost person. When in reality, as we will see in the days ahead, it's the law of God that is our tutor to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. And so God calls us as believers, not just me as a pastor, but you as a preacher. For in one sense, as he will teach in the 10th chapter, we are all preachers of God to carry the good news and with it the whole counsel of Scripture. And part of the responsibility that God has given us, if we want the Spirit of God to use us, is to help people to see that they are lost, because before a man can get saved, he must get lost. In fact, before a man understands the bad news, he will never see it as good news. Suppose I came running up to you this morning and I said, I have good news, wonderful, wonderful, magnificent news, your house is not on fire, rejoice. (laughs) say, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that, but if your house had been on fire and you'd been waiting for an answer and I came to you, the fire has been put out, your house has been saved, then you would have something to rejoice about. Well, until we really understand our predicament in sin, not just as lost people, but as saved people, because not only are we to be saved by grace, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Until we see that, we will not fully appreciate all that Jesus Christ has done and has for us. Now, I hope you found it. We're going to begin precisely where we left off last time. We're in Romans chapter 3, beginning now in verse 1. Follow along with you in your Bible. Paul asks the question, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of apse is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, you do not have to read the Bible very much to discover that there's something desperately wrong with society. In fact, you don't have to read the Bible at all. All you need to do is read your internet headlines or open the newspaper or listen to the news and you know that something is wrong. But God wants to highlight in our thinking just how bad it really is. Now, don't forget the context. In the introduction that comprises the first 17 verses of Romans, Paul introduces us to the theme of this letter, the gospel. He will define it and then describe its implications in this great letter. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why are you not ashamed, Paul? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To everyone who believes. Does everyone really need to be saved? Yes, they do. And to prove this, beginning in Romans 1.18, Paul begins to introduce us to the doctrine of condemnation. We've seen the book of Romans divides into three sections, and each section in turn divides into three parts. Chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section, and there he deals with the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. He's dealing right now with the doctrine of condemnation. And so he paints the universal need for the gospel. And to demonstrate that there's a universal need for the gospel, he demonstrates the universality of sin and the condemnation that it brings. All men need the gospel of Christ. And so as we've seen, he's like an attorney. He's like a skilled lawyer. And his uh, procedure with all of society is identical. He brings an accusation against each group. He then marshals all the evidence against them. He proves their guilt. He secures a conviction. And he says, in essence, they are without excuse under the wrath of God. And he does that with every section of the human race. You can take 118 through 320, and you will find every segment of humanity throughout all of time. And with each segment, he confronts them with the same uncomfortable fact that they have not lived up to their knowledge of God. 
that no one can claim innocence before God because no one can claim ignorance about God. Now, if you remember, he dealt first in chapter 118 all the way through verse 32, and he deals with the depraved pagan Gentile. And he accuses them in verse 18 of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, some would ask, hey, Paul, they're raw pagans. What truth do they have to su suppress? They don't know anything about God or the Bible. And Paul says, yes, they do. Because he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are crystal clear. They're clearly seen through the things that God has created. The reason they live like pagans is not because they don't have revelation, but because they suppress the revelation that they do have. And so their condemnation is just. No possible defense can be given for their idolatrous lifestyle. Then, uh, after he describes these people that God gives up, he says it three times over in chapter 1, God gave them up. It's the wrath of God that is being revealed. There's the wrath of God to come. There's the wrath of God that is here today. And if you look at Romans 1 carefully, it is really a fast becoming a description of these United States of America. But when he turns the page in chapter 2 and verse 1, all the way through verse 16, he deals with the moralist. Remember, not every Gentile was a hardcore pagan any more than any, uh, every unbeliever today is a murderer, an adulterer, a wicked, vile sinner of sorts. There are many good, moral, lost people who are still sinful. And so Paul deals with the moralists in the first half of chapter 2. And he demonstrates in their condemnation of other people that they, in essence, claim to know God's standard. And then he shows that the very standard they use against other people and judging others, they themselves have not lived up to that standard, and they too are guilty. Then he moves, if you remember, beginning in 2.17, all the way through the end of the chapter, from that person he's been describing as O man to verse 17 where he says, if you bear the name Jew. Listen, if anybody could feel a sense of security, if anyone thought they were right with God, if anyone thought they had a real chance at heaven, and indeed it was the Jewish person. And so Paul, if you remember, looked at eight specific ways in which a faithful Jew thought he was eternally safe, and he pulls the rug out from underneath their feet and shows them that they too are guilty. Now that's the context. Now let me say this, as I was explaining to a little boy in my office this week, I said to him as an 11-year-old, I said, God has something for you every week. And I said, you're not going to understand everything that Pastor Carl says. I said, just like while you know how to add and subtract and divide and multiply, you haven't yet had algebra or geometry or trigonometry or calculus. And I said, as a pastor, as I feed the flock of God week after week, I have to feed the realm of God's people that are represented here today. Some who are just learning their numbers and some who are in advanced calculus and everything in between. And so let me just say, we're coming into a passage of Scripture that has both milk and meat, has both learning your numbers and calculus and everything in between. But there's something here for all of us if we will gird up our minds for action and listen to what God has to say. If you're using your note-taking outline there in the bulletin, you will notice Roman numeral number one deals with some objections to Paul 
from the Jews. Now, we've seen that Paul's method in dealing with false notions is a first century literary method still used today known as diatribe. Diatribe comes from a Greek word, diatraben, that means to erase or to rub away. And so Paul takes either real or the imaginary objections that they would raise before him, and he erases them. He shows that they are not valid objections at all. And so he has this imaginary dialogue with his students, with his critics, and he shows how bad the position is that they hold. We've already seen that in chapter 2, and he's going to do it again here in chapter 3. And some of the objections he raises are the same things you see Jesus dealing with in his public ministry. They're the same things that Paul would have himself said as an unconverted Pharisee, and they're the things that Paul deals with in the book of Acts as he goes to various synagogues preaching to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so about this time, when you turn into the third chapter, some of the Jews would say, oh, wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute. I have four objections. And if you can answer these four problems that I have, I might be willing to listen to you. And so he deals with each of these four problems. First, in verses one and two, objection number one, point A there, what about God's covenant? What about God's covenant? Now, remember, in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Abraham when he started the nation of people, uh, when he started the nation of Israel. A covenant is a, an agreement. It's an agreement between two people. In this case, it's an agreement between God and man. And God, of course, being God, he sets the terms of this covenant, and he sets Israel apart through Abraham. He begins a new nation where Abraham becomes the progenitor of a new group of people that God is going to use in a special way. And as we studied last time, circumcision was the sign and seal of that covenant. You can go and read about that covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and chapter 17. But understand their first objection. Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jews? Stop right there. That's a good question. The Jew, in essence, is asking, Paul, you've just said, as we studied at the end of chapter 2, that if you're not born again, that if you've not had circumcision of the Spirit in the heart, then you are lost. So wait a minute, Paul. The Scriptures teach that God made a covenant, an unconditional covenant, through Abraham for all the people who had come out of his loins, people today we call Jews or Hebrews that they had a special covenant relationship with God. And you've just taken away everything that we thought was unique, including circumcision, the sign and seal of this covenant. Are you telling us, Paul, that God has violated his covenant, that we are no longer his people? Now, understand the mindset that a Jew would ask this in in the first century. The Jewish people could look back over their shoulder and see nothing but a history of suffering. In fact, they were a people who have suffered and continue to suffer like no other race in the history of man. They have suffered centuries of persecution, of captivity, of humiliation, of slavery, and of judgment. In the early years, if you remember, due to a famine, they are forced to leave their homeland and go down into Egypt. And eventually a Pharaoh comes on the throne who does not know Joseph and he enslaves the people just as God had prophesied to Abraham for 400 years. And that's a brutal slavery. 
God eventually sends a deliverer, Moses. He is responsible with Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And when they get into the promised land, they have to fight for every square inch of the property. And they have to fight to keep it. And they have to deal with those idolatrous, child-sacrificing pagans. Several hundred years go by, they're divided by civil war. And the 12 tribes then called Israel split into 10 northern tribes that retain the name Israel and two southern tribes called Judah. Their own sin, if you remember, brought the judgment of God. First, the 10 northern tribes are carried into captivity by the Assyrians, then the two southern tribes by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is destroyed, and once again the people are vanquished from their homeland. Eventually, after 70 years, as God predicted through Jeremiah the prophet, they return. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, the walls are rebuilt and the temple is resurrected. And so, even in the city, though, they are threatened by continual war. And it's not long before the Greeks come into their homeland. Antiochus Epiphanes, whom Daniel 11 predicts precisely, he is a type, Daniel describes, of the coming Antichrist. He's a picture, he's an illustration of that yet coming man of sin. And he comes in and he desecrates their temple and he slaughters their priests. Later on under Roman rule, the persecution continues. The pain and suffering is not let up. And literally tens of thousands of Jewish people during the reign of Rome are crucified. Under Herod the Great, if you remember, the male children in the city of Bethlehem are slaughtered, and there is great torment amongst the people. They wept bitter tears. By the time the apostle Paul comes on the scene, the Jewish people are despised people. Josephus, himself a Jew and a historian of the first century, said that the Jewish people in his day were regarded, quote, as barbarians, superstitious, and the most disgusting of all races. Eight years later, in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, Titus Vespucian, the Roman general, comes down and he destroys the city, takes it apart where not a single stone is left upon another. More than a million men, women, and children are killed. About 100,000 are spared, and those are either brought into slavery or they are brought into the Colosseums as sport for the Roman people. You could go further through the atrocities of the centuries up to the last century where Hitler killed some six million Jews. And of course, even this week, an Arab leader said that the Jewish people need to be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, I believe with all my heart that the anti-Semitism against this people is rooted in hell. Satan hates Jesus Christ who came into this world as, as a part of the Jewish race. And he knows the covenant that God has made with Israel. And so if he could get rid of the Jew, he would. He knows the future because God recorded it in the Revelation for any to read. That there's coming a day called the Great Tribulation where 144,000 Jewish men will act as evangelists and they will carry the gospel through the world to people who have never heard before the gospel in power and clarity. And millions of people like the sands of the seashore, John says, will be converted. People will be transferred out of Satan's kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light. 
And so Satan's hatred of the Jewish people continues. He makes war against them during the battle of Armageddon and ultimately right down to that final time in human history when Jesus is ruling and reigning in his kingdom, he will come up against the city of Jerusalem. So understand, it is impossible to really explain this great hatred for the Jewish people apart from Satan himself. And so when you come to Romans chapter 3, these people knew their history, they knew their suffering, but they were willing to go through it because God had made a covenant with them. And so they are saying to Paul, well, what good is it to be a Jew? If our connection to Abraham is seen through the sign and symbol of circumcision has no significance, then what advantage is there to being Jewish? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Do you see the imaginary question that Paul is positing before us? If the Jew is lost like everyone else, then what good is it being Jewish? And you would expect the Apostle Paul to say no good at all. But that's not what he says. Look at verse 2. He says, great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. He was saying, you receive the oracles of God. You receive the revelation of God. You receive the very words of Almighty God. And when he says, first of all, he's not going to make a, a list here like first, second, and third. He's speaking of what is of most importance. He is saying the number one benefit of being a Jew is that you are entrusted with the oracles of God. You are entrusted with the written truth, with the breath of God. What an immense privilege he's saying. You were given the book of God concerning the coming of Messiah. You were given God's word concerning future things. You were given the divine plan of salvation by grace through faith, as he will remind them in the fourth chapter. The Jewish nation had the inspired, infallible, eternal word of God. What an incredible blessing from Moses on Mount Sinai, all the way down through these Jewish apostles who supervised the giving of the New Testament. They were the stewards of God's word. Now, the Apostle Paul has already taught us in the second chapter that their possession alone of the Word of God doesn't make them Christians. However, having a copy of the Bible was an incredible privilege for these people. Do you own a copy of the Bible? Do you realize how great a privilege it is to have in our tongue not just one translation, but multiple translations? of the entire Bible where many of God's people through the wor world have nothing or maybe just a book of the Bible? A story I love to read my grandkids is the story of Mary Jones. And it's the story of this Welsh girl that I read to them again this week who lived in the 19th century. And she so earnestly wanted a copy of the Bible in the Welsh language. She would hear it read in church, and as she learned to read, and she had the privilege to read the only Bible in the community, her heart just reached out for it. And at the age of nine, for the next six years until she was 15, she saved and saved and saved this poor little impoverished girl. She did everything that she could to earn a Bible, and then she walked 25 miles to get a copy of the Word of God. Today, we just blow it off. We have in our hands this morning God's Word. You know, recently I had a five-year-old in my office, and 
he perfectly quoted John 3.16. And I thought it wasn't until I was 18, as far as I know, that I ever even heard John 3.16. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes and You've had parents and grandparents who have taught you the Bible from childhood. You just take it for granted. You say, well, what else is new? And it's become so familiar that you have a cavalier attitude towards the Bible you hold in your hands. I want you to see the impact of what Paul is saying here in verse 2. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, that means of primary importance, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I want you to imagine the world as one big massive island in solid pitch blackness and despair. And there's only one bridge off of that island into paradise. In you alone have the spotlight to shine the light on that bridge so that people can get out of that darkness and into paradise. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying the Jew has the spotlight. God has entrusted them to lead a lost world, to be a light to the Gentiles, just as we today as Christians have been given that spotlight. But do you know what we're doing with the spotlight today? We discussed it last week if you were here. We're shining the spotlight on needles and haystacks. We've turned our discussions into theological trivia. And we've spent our, our, our time arguing and debating trivia that is really secondary in nature and has very little to do with getting people saved and helping people to mature in their faith. And still others thinking that it's too offensive. They no longer open as pastors the word of God on Sunday morning because they don't want to be too heavy. And what we are doing is in contradistinction to what Jesus has called us all to do. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Paul is telling his Jewish brethren, listen, you have the spotlight. Take Jonah, Jonah who had been given the evangelistic light, and God says, go to Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh at that time were Israel's enemies. Go to Nineveh and share with them the gospel. And of course, he runs in the opposite direction, and it's not until he spends three days and nights on that foam blubber mattress and then has an amphibious landing that God has his attention. And he preaches the simple truth of salvation and one of the greatest revivals in all of history takes place. He's shown the light on the bridge to the Ninevites. But in Paul's day, much like in our day, the Jewish people were busy playing church games and they missed their advantage. And that's always, that always happens when people turn inward. And when they turn inward, they typically turn self-righteous. If God is not the be-all and end-all of worship, then worship becomes selfish, and selfish worship turns into self-righteousness. And suddenly, worship is no longer pure and undefiled, but it becomes stained by the world. To listen again to today's study entitled, The Depravity of Man, use the free Search the Scriptures app for iPhones and Android devices, available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. Just visit either site and search for Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogy. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or give us a call at 877-787-7478 
and request program ROM11. However you listen, please consider becoming a Search the Scriptures supporter. We are committed to sharing the hope found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and in maximizing that relationship for believers. Once you contact us and make a one-time gift or become a regular supporter. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478 and we're online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we continue our look at the depravity of man. Join us then as we search the scriptures.